Welcome to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Get ready for the latest veterinary news, information and entertainment. Don't forget to visit us at the Vet Gurus website, vetgurus.com. Now, sit back, relax, it's over to the Vet Gurus, Brendan and Mark. Thank you, Mr. Intro Man, and welcome to the Vet Podcast, Veterinary Podcast by Brendan and Mark. Gee, I tell you what, Mark, it has been a tiring week this week for me. I don't know about you. I think all the weeks are getting more and more tiring as we get older and older. And I've got something very important to talk to you about next week, Mark. I'm not going to even let you get a hint of what it is next week, but um, it's something very monumental as far as um, veterinary career oh. goes. So that's something to look forward or not to look forward to, Mark. What have you been up to this week? Well, I'm, I'm getting already excited for your news, but um, I've, <laughs> I've, I've had a, um, a few days where uh, it's been a, 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 a magic transformation. I went out on um, Sunday morning and uh, visited one of my local um, uh, bird haunts, the Pambalong Wetlands here in western Newcastle, and I was shocked, Brendan, truly shocked, because the... Um, the place where I usually have a nice broad shallow lake and uh, lovely water birds abounding was dry as a bone. I could literally walk out on the cracked, dried mud, not get my feet wet, wander over about 100 metres of um, just there was nothing nothing but cracked stuff till I get to the stumps on the other side where the birds usually perch. And there was a few... In 17 altogether, I was able to find 17 um, eastern long-necked turtle shells, turtles that had, uh, they were all about 10 or 15 centimetres in length. There weren't any really big ones and no hatchlings. I think those um, little hatchlings probably make a pretty good meal altogether. Um, but, um, but yeah, uh, the, the uh, absence of rain has really taken its toll locally on the there – and there were no birds. Um, so the bird life and the reptile life have really taken hit. But in the last 24 hours, we've had heaps of rain and, uh, and those wetlands once again are starting to fill up and I expect to be able to go there shortly and get some excellent views and images of our local wetland birds. Well, my um, my weekend was a little bit opposite. We we had our local festival. It was a um, what's it called a jazz and food festival, and it's just a little mini festival in our in our um, little district here. And I thought I'd trot along there and take a couple of pics and wander around and have a have a cuppa and see what's happening there. And um, I took both my cameras, Mark. I took my digital one and I took my old medium format film camera. And I had the film camera out and that's quite interesting. Whenever I, whenever I pull my old, um, 1960s film camera out, um, you get a lot of strange looks or I get a lot of strange looks and also, um, end up striking up some very interesting conversations and it's a real conversation starter. So half the time I'm out trying to take photos with the film camera, I end up not taking any photos and just chatting to people about um, what the hell am I holding in my hand. But I was angry, Mark, I was angry because a woman came up to me and she's, she looked at my film camera that I was literally just, I'd just taken a couple of pics um, and she said, does that thing work? Um, does that old thing actually still work? And I, and I looked... 
So I was very, very close. I looked her up and down and said, well, you're not a young spring, spring chicken yourself and, and you still look like you're working. Um, so, yeah, but no, I explained very nicely um, that it was an old film camera and it still takes amazing photos. Um, and she walked off with an air of disbelief. Um, yeah, so I wasn't happy, Mark. Um, so then I switched over to the digital camera and, and took a few pics there as well. But um, I, I took my frustrations out on the um, on the editing of the of the um, photos a bit later and made some pretty crazy edits with my pictures. I have to send a couple to. You. So apart from that, I've been um, today. I had a really long day teaching. Um, um, veterinary nurses or veterinary technicians for those of you um, in the US and some other countries and I think it leads in quite nicely to our main topic um, that we'll talk about a little bit later which is a wildlife topic Mark but before we do that I think I'll just read out the email that we um, just received which I found was quite quite fun and this is from a friend of, of both of us called Kathy um, who's an Australian vet who <laughs> doesn't seem to spend much time vetting I, I think Mark um, every time I get an email from Kathy she's off somewhere um, on holiday, and this one was from India, um, but it was quite a quite an amusing little um, um, email, and I'll just read it out. Um, Hi, Brendan, how are you? Well, I'm, I'm good, Cathy. Thank you very much. Um, I finished listening to your latest podcast. You and Mark sure know how to have fun. Well, we already knew thank that. You. Um, yeah, <laughs> I am in India and found it wonderful to listen to the two of you talking about your variety of topics amongst the noise and traffic of drifting in drifting in from outside. I'm stopping at a nice place now. The rooms are centred around a lush courtyard complete with macaques and luckily none of them have stolen my food and she goes on to talk about a couple of other things. So big shout-out to Cathy there. So I think she likes to put her podcast on to, to, to get uh, – I think – what we're called is white noise, aren't we, Mark? So she turns us on to um, get rid of the rest of the clatter and, and the noise of um, walking around in India. But, yeah, we, we love getting emails or contact from, from um, subscribers. So um, please send us um, a hello and um, we'll give you a shout-out on, um, on the podcast. So let's jump into the news, Mark, and we've got four really um, quick little um, topics here, um, some quite quirky and others quite um, sciencey and interesting. And I think the first one you have is about um, horses. Indeed it is, Brendan, and um, it's a, um, a topic uh, that I have particular interest in because um, when I was a student, I spent some time at the zoo um, not in the formal paid role that you had, um, but um, more as a, um, well, as a zookeeper. Um, and the, the Przewalski's horses at uh, the Western Plains Zoo in New South Wales at uh, Dubbo, they were, they were amongst one of my favourite animals to spend time watching. And this article talks about a change in their status um, as the ancestors of the modern horse, um, which I find really, it's a really fascinating article and it talks about 10 things that you didn't, you know, it's a BuzzFeed type article, 10 things you didn't know about Przewalski's horse. Um, but the main thing that I didn't know was this, um, the, the fact that there were the Bowtie people in, um, in, uh, um, uh, uh, where the Przewalski's horse are, um, they um, – oh, I've just got it right here up in um, China and um, 
uh, Mongolia. And yes. they, uh, the Bajai people in Mongolia, um, ancient people who uh, left remnants, left archaeological remnants, which showed that they had um, domesticated horses. They actually left in their uh, f- food, their ceramic food bowls, um, uh, milk and horse meat. And from that... Um, the uh, it was always assumed that um, they had tamed Przewalski's horse, and from there, um, the radiation of the uh, domestic horse had occurred. But it would appear that um, that that domestication is a complete that they did in fact domesticate Przewalski's horse, uh, but the genes of that uh, particular group of horses, the Bowties domesticated horse and Przewalski's horse, are. Uh, um, are not the source of um, uh, modern horses. And so the whole equus, you know, equine family tree has been turned on its head. Um, And it really points to multiple times, probably in multiple locations with multiple wild populations that um, the domestic horse was um, gradually developed uh, through Central Asia and then spread across the rest of the world. An excellent story on on Przewalski's horse, Brendan. Yes, and the other the other um, point number three in the top in the three things you didn't know about them, I found quite interesting as well. Talking about how they nearly disappeared into extinction, and very few of them in captivity made it through World War Two. And the last wild individual was spotted in 1969, and the species was listed as extinct from the wild in the 1960s until 1990s, where one surviving individual was found in the wild, and other bands of captive bred horses were introduced. And currently there are about 400 horses living in the wild and about 2,000 individuals in captive breeding programs and zoos across the world. Um, so, yeah, it was, um, it, was a, it was a really interesting article. Yeah. Ten things you didn't know about the last wild horses on earth was the name of the article. We'll link to that at our website, vetgurus.com. Um, second article is, oh, the second article is one I was going to talk about, wasn't it, Mark? And that's, um, and we were talking off air before we started here, and it was uncanny that I picked this particular article because you wanted to um, talk about this topic um, in, in a veterinary um, surgical sense um, shortly, don't you, Mark? So make sure we talk about that in a sec. So this article is titled Squirrel Glider Jim, The Last Step Before the Real Thing. And it's just a short article that was reported on ABC News in Australia, the national news um, organisation, um, about um, a Brisbane resident, so Brisbane um, on the um, north coast of um, northern areas of Australia, and a, a person wanted to provide sanctuary for squirrel gliders, a native marsupial. They're not squirrels, they're a native Australian marsupial. And he started a GoFundMe campaign, Mark. Uh, I know you like to talk about GoFundMe-type <laughs> campaigns. Um, in order to build a shelter large enough that the young gliders could learn the skills needed to be released back into the wild. So he eventually did receive um, enough money through the GoFundMe campaign and last year he began receiving um, orphan gliders and that he, he, he rehabs them in this halfway house and he calls it his glider gym, which is a seven-metre by three-metre enclosure for these um, rescue gliders. Um, 
So his first batch of 13 orphans are almost ready for release. So they're going through their final paces in the gym, leaping, running and playing in preparation for the real thing. Although sugar gliders are near extinct in the Brisbane region, squirrel gliders, which is this species, um, which are related, are relatively abundant in remnant bushland. So you wanted to talk a little bit about surgical aspects of squirrel gliders, Mark. Well, there was a couple of things to do with the the, um, the, the sugar gliders. Um, they, the first one was that I, I did an interview. We were looking for a new employee, and I interviewed a wonderful vet from Germany. Um, and uh, during the, the um, interview, she did say, oh, I'm so glad to have an Australian vet on the line because, um, you know, I, I want to know how you cope with uh, castrating um, sugar gliders because she struggled with it. And, and you know, obviously... I, I responded that they, you know we don't keep them as pets in Australia. They're they're um uh, they I don't get to castrate very many of them at all. And so I was going to ask you rather uh, you know um, in 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 uh, in full expectation that you would have the same response how you castrate them. But surprisingly, you get to say yes. I um, I castrated two squirrel gliders two weeks ago. So um, squirrel gliders are, and and um, and um, sugar gliders are a very similar species. Um, and the castration. So in Victoria here, where where I am, um, it is you can have a sugar glider or a squirrel glider on a permit legally. So we do see a few of them um, in, in my practice um, for various um, reasons and some for the preventative health um, aspects of it. So, yeah, I, I did um, ended up, I ended up um, castrating two of the um, sugar gliders last week and basically um, a very similar technique to castrating or virtually identical technique to castrating a sugar glider mark um, and I think there's two ways of doing it. Um, one is um, a removing just the two testes um, and leaving the scrotum. Um, I think the Second method is is an easier technique, and that's doing a scrotal ablation. It's quite easy to do. You make a, a circumferential incision around the base of the scrotum, and um, um, gently dissect out um, the the stalks there, and um, clamp off and ablate the scrotum with the testes. And we end up with a really tiny incision um, that we clo- that I close just with tissue glue, and it looks really neat. You haven't got this pendulous scrotum without any testes um, flapping in the wind afterwards, and it's and it's one less thing for the animal to, to chew at. But yeah, I did to to I castrated two of them um, just a fortnight ago. Yeah, um, they're, they're so, fascinating, fascinating animals in that they're pets in. Europe, America, and Victoria, um, they're highly protected here and you can get into lots of trouble for having them. Um, and in Tasmania, they're a, um, a renowned for my, you know, my two favourite um, bird species that are dying out in the wild, the swift parrots and the orange-bellied parrots, the, um, feral sugar, the feral sugar gliders that have made their way to Tasmania actually raid the nests regularly and are a significant um, uh, 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 predator significant survival risk for um, nesting um, particularly the swift parrot so it's amazing how the one species plays so many roles around the world yes and um, 
I think the other point I'd like to make about sugar gliders and squirrel gliders is it is one of these species that we often have debates about, should we be keeping them as pets? Um, because they are a very communal animal and they like to live with other sugar gliders or squirrel gliders, that, and yet we do see, unfortunately, some clients who have only purchased one of these animals and, and we get the equivalent of the of the psychotic bird that rips itself apart. So they end up um, with all sorts of um, psychological problems because they're not living in, in a group of, of their own kind. Um, fortunately, the clients I've seen recently, including the ones where we castrated those two sugar gliders, they've, they've, they have several sugar gliders in a large aviary and, and they're kept quite well. So, But there's always the debate about whether or not we should be keeping these animals um, as pets, um, as we have spoken about before, Mark. So um, the third news topic, Topic is something about um, dogs that you want to chat about. Well, I'm, and and I'm, this article is really, um, uh, um, I found it particularly interesting because um, one of the things that um, I get to do each day when I'm not looking at birds and reptiles is talk to people about, it, it seems to be an increasing part of small uh, small animal practice to um to discuss behaviour issues um, at the the um, primary accession point, um, and we're seeing well, at least where we are um, a decrease in the number of um, uh, referral options for us. So uh, where we previously had a couple of um, uh, uh, veterinarians who had memberships, and uh, we could easily get access to a specialist in Sydney. Those those uh, facilities, the specialist is still in Sydney, but um, there's very very few people with memberships. Uh, with behaviour, and um, so we talk a lot about behaviour yet at work with dogs. And this one particularly tickled my fancy. It's an uh, article that talks about the significance of licking their lips, of mouth licking behaviour in dogs as a an attempt to communicate with humans. And this study, um, which is reported um, in uh, at on the website phys.org, um, it particularly highlights that uh, dogs um, respond with mouth licking, with lip licking, um, in response to particular human facial expressions. And which expression do you think would be most likely to elicit lick, lipping, lip licking? Um, try and say that five times in a row after you've had one of Brendan's fine glasses of wine. Um, which <laughs> face... Which uh, human expression, which human facial expression triggers that, um, that behaviour in dogs? Um, it is the perception in domestic dogs that they are observing visual cues of anger. So when dogs do that uh, lip licking, mouth licking, running their tongue repeatedly around the side of their mouth, um, they are expressing um, the fact that they perceive anger in the human facial expressions around them and they're trying in dog language to appease that behavior they're, they're um, trying to um, negate that negative emotion they're perceiving in the people around them and um, and it's interesting to me because I think much of the behavior we perceive in an, all our pets but particularly in dogs um, I see an awful lot of anthropomorphizing and misinterpretation which in turn adds to in my opinion the anxiety those dogs are experiencing in their life with humans and so understanding what a particular dog might be perceiving 
can definitely help us in that uh, inter-specific communication, I reckon. Yes. So whenever I catch up with you and you're out um, for, for a bit of a meal and you're sitting there licking your lips, then you're just angry at me. Is that what you're trying to tell me? No, no. You're angry at me. I'm trying <laughs> to appease you by, by giving you a... a, a, oh, a, yes, a, a yes. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I've got it back to front as usual again, haven't I, Mark? Yes. Okay, so let's move on to the last um, news story. And it's um, I'm quite happy, Mark. Um, I'm actually happy for once. So um, the news is that the first international snail grand national race has been cancelled, and I'm happy. Why? Because as a general rule, personally, I'm not too happy when we have um, we have animals in, in races, especially ones that involve money, regardless of what species, because I think where there's money and there's animals, there's potential abuse of those animals as well. So I'm quite happy that they've cancelled the first international snail grand national race, which was billed as um, a major event um, at Dartmoor Union Inn, which is basically a pub in England. Um, that decided to have this charity snail race. And guess what? It's been cancelled because temperatures across much of Europe are below normal for the t- for this time of year. For those people who are our listeners in Europe um, will know um, much about this because they've had bitterly cold winds and snow um, and cutting off rural communities, etc. And um, Apparently, and this is a direct quote from the pub which has cancelled or the representative for the pub, um, the direct quote is, the cold snap has led to a medical problem with our racing snails. It's called hibernation. And so apparently all the snails have gone into hibernation because it's so cold. So they cancelled the first international snail grand national and they're planning to which is the sad news, they're planning to start up again later once um, the cold has thawed, Mark, and the charity pub snail race will occur. So there you go. Um, I just hope you're not going to place a bet when it occurs, Mark. But I will put a I will put a link to this particular event because it is an actual event that was planned. I mean, the good thing was it was... Um, it was potentially for a charity um, as well. Um, so, but as I say, I don't like anything that's involving betting and animals personally because there's the potential for abuse um, on there, including snails. Um, and apparently, I think what's going to happen when it does start this particular race that um, it's pretty obvious what the um, what the um, referee is going to say. Mark is going to say, "Ready, set, escargo." I knew you were going to say that. There you go. Okay, so let's get on to our main topic for the week. That's enough. Um, just, that's just my quick, corny joke just, for the just week. Just quickly before we start our main yes, topic. Yes. Um, did I ever tell you that I actually have a client who farms snails? I thought you were going to say, um, do do snails fart? Um, and I'll, I'll pull out the, te- the book, the te- textbook. Oh, you need to find um, that out. Um, yes. And I can have a look. I was going to say I'll pull. Yeah, I, think, I think we've... Painted ourselves into the corner of having to have a a, a snail specific episode in the very near future. Sorry, I was just putting myself on mute there. I was laughing too much, Mark. So if you see my microphone going on mute, you know what's happening with me there. Yeah. Um, yes, I will pull out the book. I won't pull out my finger um, to see if um, snails do fart or not. Um, um, you were going to do a review, Mark, as well, but let's leave that to the very end. Let's swap around things in case we have time because I think it's a quite an interesting topic um, 
that we're getting onto that's um, actually gives some people some information rather than us just talking a load of piffle. And that is our main topic um, is wildlife worries. So what are we going to talk about, Mark? Well, my, my interest was piqued by a Facebook post on a particular site which talked about um, some of the uh, problems that a young veterinarian might face in the situation where they express an interest in um, in uh, working with wildlife and so uh, maybe even promote themselves to the local wildlife rescue groups as someone who would be interested to do the right thing. Um, and then as a result, um, they end up with a fair number of cases, some of them coming to them from other veterinary practices um, and then becoming particularly disheartened because they um, constantly get cases that um, have been sent to carers with no treatment whatsoever from other veterinary clinics, particularly cases that uh, probably should have um, should have not gone anywhere, that should have um, maybe been uh, um, uh, euthanized at the point of primary accession. Um, and so... Uh, I, I know this feeling myself, and so I um, uh, I um, recognise the the worry that this causes our young colleague. And I thought it might be a good opportunity for us to just run through this issue and maybe some of the other ones, and the way that we try to um, manage our interaction with um, uh, our um, our uh, local practices and um, and also uh, um, how we deal with uh, wildlife care groups to make sure that we don't get run down and and um, disheartened in working with these wonderful animals. So do so, you get to do a fair bit of wildlife stuff? Yeah, we do. And, and funnily enough, I, I spent... Um, some time today chatting to the the nurses doing the elective subject in the Bachelor of Veterinary Nursing degree that's um, just started and we're doing case reports very similar to this, yeah. Um, it, it was quite um, disturbing, I think, that the comment that, that, that you're referencing to, which was um, which was on a particular Facebook site um, talking about um, a, a fairly new... Uh, well, I don't know whether they're a new graduate, but a but but a, a small animal veterinarian who um, was was concerned about the treatment of wildlife into the area that she has moved into, and uh, I'm actually going to quote just a couple of sentences from it, and it was my concern is that that I'm constantly getting cases that are suffering that have been sent to carers with no treatment whatsoever from vet clinics, broken back, wings, legs, etc., often with bone protruding, no pain relief in 99% of the cases. They are often told to take it home and rehab. Is everybody seeing this or is it just the area is really bad at managing and dealing with wildlife um, help? You know, what advice can you please give me on this sort of thing? So, yeah, it's it's frustrating um you know in this day and age that we still have vet clinics and vets and and um that that still treat those wildlife as just a, a nuisance um and we as i said we were discussing these sort of case reports um today with with veterinary nurses technicians and um it was amazing how many of them put up the hand when i said um and and of this group 
only two of the two of the group weren't working as veterinary nurses, and of 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 those working, um, the, there was probably sixty or seventy percent of them. They put up their hand when I said, um, "How many of you have witnessed or, or, or experienced um, where wildlife has been brought into a vet clinic and it doesn't even have a basic triage where the vet um, will examine that animal and, and make a an obvious quick decision to euthanize them when when they have horrific injuries there or, or life-threatening injuries or they're in obvious pain and, and, and give them some pain relief. Um, and virtually, yeah, 60 to 80% of them put up their hand and said, yes, we, we, we've seen that. It's it's sad. So I don't know how 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 we can fix it, Mark, and address it and, 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 and not end up with the wildlife that just put in a little box, thrown out the back of the clinic, and then at the end of the day, um, Somebody thinks, "Oh, what will we do with the bird, small mammal, reptile um, that's in the box that came in the wildlife?" And then somebody goes out the back to have a look at this box, and we have a dead um, animal in that box that's been sitting there suffering for several minutes or several hours and died a pretty horrible death. Whereas if it could have been assessed for a couple of minutes, they could have done a quick triage of it and worked out whether or not it was something that was viable, or we could give it a nice humane um, euthanasia. And, and I agree, you know, I think that's probably, if there's one take-home message out of this, it's um, it's that just, and you, you said a few minutes, I think that uh, most reasonable veterinarians can, um, for, can make a, a, a fairly, in, in the vast majority of cases, it literally takes just a few seconds to go, um, yep, this is a species that, um, that uh, you know, we're not going to be able to get if we can't get it back out in the wild very quickly, then that's not going to be a, a, a um, reasonable thing to do um, and we should immediately elect to, um, to euthanise particular types of cases. Um, and, and, and as you said, it limits the amount of suffering and, um, it, uh, and, it, um, and it facilitates, you know, space in the clinic and, um, and enhances our reputation with the general public when we're authoritative like that. Um, there are issues with it, though. I know that we have uh, we have gotten into trouble with members of the public before, where um, they've um, formed a particular affection for an animal that they've spent some time to collect and get into a box and bring to us. Um, and when um, when its injuries are so severe that we elect to um, uh, to to and we always inform the member of the public we want them to understand why our decision making process we had this happen to us just last week we had a an eastern long neck turtle that had been hit by a car and and those things it never ceases to amaze me the horrific injuries they have and and how they hang on to dear life but um once they they have significant hemorrhage and breach of the coelom with some um, uh, compound fractures of the shell um they're animals that um that we immediately elect to euthanize because they're suffering and um and uh and we we literally um, nearly got into a fight with the people who felt that um that it was a savable animal and that we should um uh, should invest but it's an opportunity for us to educate the public and and of course an opportunity to limit the suffering that goes on in the world um I think the key, yeah, Mark, there is trying to trying to make it an education experience from them for for the public, regardless of what what the outcome is for that animal, and and 
getting back to the start with it, I think the, the important one of the important factors, and we worked through it, workshopped it today with the class today, is is making sure you, each clinic has a wildlife admission form. Um, that sets out the basics that that maximises the chance that that wildlife will get back out there if if it is viable to 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 um, to get back out there and that, and that's just the basics. It, it's simply having a contact number for that person, maybe even an address, um, um, so you can follow up things with them and they can they can watch the progress whether it ends up um, being euthanized or, or being rehabilitated and released. Um, and they may even, if they're lucky, be able to go out to the release site and watch that animal be released back into the wild um, getting the basic informations um, the basic information the nurse will get from that that member of the public when it drops off that wildlife include things like um, where did you find it what time of the day you found it were there any other animals of the same species around for instance a bird that might be found on the ground could just be a bird that's fallen out of the nest that's learning to fly and all the parents are, are sitting there carrying on and we try and release it back in that area and get it back pretty quickly or is it um, have they fed the animal how long have you kept it what have you fed it how long have um, it has it has it has it taken anything to eat has it passed any drop-ins just all the basic sort of husbandry um, aspects of, of what that person may have done with the animal because it's it can be a bit scary what people do with 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 wildlife when they pick it up and um, try and offer to feed it um, and and it can be a problem um, as far as causing issues with that animal down the track. Um, so getting the basics in, in, in a simple little one-page form that every person fills in as they, they bring that animal in. Um, another uh, another um, point that's probably useful to, to talk about is um, some clinics bill out the treatment of every single wildlife case as if it was... Uh, a normal patient um, and you show that invoice to the carer or the member of the public who brought that animal in just to give them an indication of how much time and effort and cost has gone into rehabilitating wildlife and spending time on wildlife and I think that's a great idea we, we don't keep I don't know whether you do Mark but we don't keep statistics on how much money we spent under a wildlife account as far as treating them or even cost for drugs but I think that's a good good thing to do because um, I think it's important to try and um, make the public aware of the fact that um, you know vets will be treating wildlife for free, and um, it's not an insignificant amount. Um, and the case discussion we had today, one of the clinics did um, that particular process, and they found that it was eleven thousand dollars that they'd um, um, billed out um, when they were billing out the wildlife cases, um, like they would with other species, for just one month of wildlife yeah, okay. care. Um, which is not insignificant. I, and we do the, exactly the same thing, and it's not a, a huge surprise to me to hear those sorts of numbers because um, they would be uh, very close to the sorts of numbers we generate with uh, with our uh, wildlife work. And I think the other thing too is that um, amongst the general public are certainly the the people that we speak to, there is a, a perception that somehow uh, as veterinarians we recoup that money that the government somehow pays us to look after wildlife um, as opposed to it being pro bono work that um, that we do because we're interested in it and uh, we have a care for animal welfare, particularly those, uh, those wildlife cases. So I think that education process, um, showing people the invoice, we actually uh, in... 
insist on a, a fraction of the um, of our normal consult fee for wildlife carers, so that the wildlife care organisation gets an invoice um, that's heavily subsidised, but still amounts to an invoice, because um, we find that if we're to give our services away completely with no record, um, then then. Um, then there does reach a point where um, wildlife carers may begin to um, take that a little bit for granted that um, that they can just show up at any time and take precedence when they feel it's an emergency. Whereas if there is some, you know, it's the old adage that if you're uh, if you get something for free, that's the value you place on it. When you've got to consider that you pay for a little bit, um, then you tend to. Um, treat it with a little bit more respect um, and uh, while we still heavily subsidise our wildlife work uh, because we love doing it, we, we like to um, to let our both the wildlife carers and the general public know that um, there is a significant cost associated with that. Yeah, and I think related to that, a, a, a process that a lot of clinics, or not a lot, but some of the clinics who, who deal with wildlife frequently end up doing is is having some sort of donation tin or donation box that uh, the the receptionist will then talk to the client and say look we we do spend a lot of our um, uh, own time and money in treating wildlife and subsidizing it Um, we we welcome any donation to help um, provide care for the wildlife at our clinic and um, um, then point them towards a little wildlife donation tin or wildlife donation box and it's amazing apparently we don't have one I should have one that um, the, the the members of the public will then still pull out a little bit of loose change and put it in there and, and help contribute to the costs that you um, of treating the wildlife. So, yeah, I think it's important, the whole aspect of who pays for wildlife care. And um, I'm sure it's pretty similar in the rest of the world and um, that, that as well as it is in Australia, would be great if it isn't in that um, the governments as a whole tend not to um, um, want to spend money if they can avoid it and if vet clinics um, are the de facto um, people who end up footing the bill for the treatment of these animals, then they'll just let the status quo happen and they'll let that go on. Um, so, And the public just do not realise that, yeah, we, we may be spending lots of time and money on these animals. When I first opened my clinic um, as, a, as an exotics or an unusual pet clinic um, after moving from being a zoo vet, uh, in that first six or 12 months, I did get a fair number of um animals um, which were wildlife which were sent from other vet clinics to my clinic and believe it or not Mark these were even um, small lizards or birds that would be sent from the other side of Melbourne from the other side of our city and and the member of the public will be told to drive for an hour and a half um, to bring the wildlife to my clinic because our clinic would treat wildlife Um, so we were inundated with lots of wildlife It, it stopped not too long after that because I finally twigged the way to stop this happening is to give the give the um, referring clinic if you could call them that a call and say okay I'm quite happy to take all the all the stray wildlife from your local suburb um, and region as long as you're okay to take all all the um, stray dogs and cats and other stray animals from my my region (laughs) and then then I think the um, the penny dropped with them and they sort of realized that hey okay maybe um, we should be treating our local wildlife and not 
trying to palm it off to Brendan where he's got a mortgage and family and kids to pay for. So, yeah. Um, who pays for wildlife is a really important thing, Mark. So yeah, and the other the other point with that initial um, post that we're, we're that we're talking about with wildlife is the whole aspect of, of analgesia and pain pain control or at least um, um, pain relief in, in wildlife. And again, I think it's unfortunate that that the clinics, both both vets and and, and some vet, veterinary nurses and technicians. Um, draw a blank or they forget that these animals um, are usually in pain and that we need to provide these animals with pain as um, just as much as we would with any other animal. Just because it is wildlife, it, is, it doesn't deserve pain relief any less than, than non-wildlife species. Um, and the good news with that is, and I think we have spoken a bit about it in um, um, one of our other podcasts, I can't remember what number it was, Mark, but um, that um, the same sort of drugs and multimodal analgesia can be used in wildlife that we would use in other species and vet clinics will have the appropriate analgesics for for virtually um, providing pain relief for all of the wildlife species already in their clinic they don't need to order in anything and special the, the good thing they? about it too is that most of the patients that you're dealing with are not going to clean out your s8 cupboard in one go they're only taking minuscule doses to provide excellent analgesia because they're often you know relatively small animals and so um, i think um, uh, there the really is um, on no ground, not on cost, not on knowledge, not on availability. There's just no excuse uh, for general practitioners not to provide the very best of uh, analgesics to these cases. And you highlighted one of my sort of little soapbox I, uh, um, issues that, um, that even though these animals are uh, in the circumstances where they, you know, being often prey animals, they uh, develop this um, sit in the corner of the box, stay very still, show no clinical signs of anything being wrong. Um, it is invariably the case that despite that behaviour, these animals, uh, uh, particularly the ones that have significant trauma fractures or um, uh, motor vehicle accidents or uh, whatever, they are in significant pain, even if they're not necessarily... Um, demonstrative about it, um, you can be very certain that if they uh, have injuries that we would find painful in other species, they are in a lot of pain and they need analgesia to um, to ensure their quality of life. And without that, um, they you are adding to the suffering of the world. Yep, and and making that initial assessment is, I think, quite easy, um, and. And vets and veterinary nurses, technicians often panic that they may be seeing wildlife or wildlife being admitted to their clinic that they don't regularly see, but they do have the skills and you do have the skills in order to assess whether that animal is in pain, regardless of whether or not you're used to seeing birds or reptiles or, or small mammals in your practice. So I don't think there's an excuse for not being able to assess these animals and, and make decisions on, on what's happening. And if you don't have that um, knowledge or, 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 or you're, you're unsure about what to do, 
then you phone a friend, um, you contact the wildlife um, care people in your local region or, or country, or you contact a veterinarian or the local zoo and talk to them. So I don't think it's rocket science, and yet it continues to occur. And it gets me angry, Mark. It gets me angry. I'm very angry today. You are very um, angry today, but I'm surprisingly <laughs> angry. Um, is that, so one of the other things that um, I think uh, this is a good um, venue for us to discuss is that there are, as well as the general principles of um, of analgesia and, and rapid triage, um, there are some peculiar, I think there are some good things to be aware of with individual species. And you alluded to one before. It's a common thing for us to find uh, people who, particularly kookaburras, kookaburra chicks are one of my um, uh, um, uh uh, the cases where people love to bring them in in a box. They found this um, this bird on the ground, and uh, and they're and often at the side of the road. Kookaburras will nest in um, hollow logs or termitaria, um, and the young kookaburras, when they take their first flight, they regularly do this like shallow dive and then swoop along the ground and up into a, a branch on a tree opposite uh, their nest site in some sort of clearing. And this uh, local microhabitat, a tree with a hollow, a clear space and then a tree um, uh, uh, on the opposite side of the clearing, often has these days a road down the middle of it. And so many young kookaburra chicks will end up on the side of the road and waiting for instruction from their parents. Um, they will be picked up by well-meaning um, members of the public and taken to veterinary hospitals. And, um, and often all those birds need is to be returned promptly um, and allowed to uh, gain instruction from their parents, maybe a very short distance, only 10 or 20 metres away from the side of the road. Um, and those birds can, you know, probably um, go on to have happy, healthy lives. So knowing the individual, some idiosyncrasies of individual species can assist in the triage, but that doesn't prevent that triage being um, a general thing that even when you don't know those peculiarities, you can go ahead and do are there particular species that you're like always aware of that you might see a particular circumstance, Brandon? Um, what? Well, the, the species we mainly see, as far as um, ones that are very commonly coming in wildlife, are. Uh, yeah, the long-necked turtles, like you see, I think you mentioned. Um, um, we have a reasonable um, mix of, of, of the local um, bird species that come in. Um, we have the occasional um, wild rabbit um, or, 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 or a litter of, of, of wild rabbits um, that come in, and that's a tricky one because we can, in Australia, we can keep pet rabbits in, in the state that I'm in. In some states you can't, um, but wild rabbits regarded as a feral species so they need to be euthanized and that can be a very hard one to get to to chat to the um, owners about or, or the carers or the the member of the public that brings that that um, litter of um, wild rabbits in and that the, the classic situation that would be um, their dog or their cat has gone out and killed the adult um, mother or the father of, of this litter of um, rabbits and and they found the little nest with the um, with the kittens in there and they bring in these really cute looking rabbits which are feral species and you need to sort of unfortunately explain to them the whole process of the fact we we're dealing with a feral species and, and we can't allow to them to be raised and um, and to be kept as pets so we do see those and and that 
that yeah, that introduces the whole topic of dealing with feral species and and can, and, and and educating the, the members of the public about dealing with those. Um, um, so there's the small mammals and and the yeah, the birds a bit of a mix. Um, we see the odd um, yeah. um, echidna. Um, so the one of the monotremes that have been um, crossing the road and clipped. Um, we see a few wombats um, as well in my practice um, that, that come across. Not pretty rarely, but we certainly do see some of them. Um, and, and it's been a while, but occasionally platypus. I don't know where you've got whether you see many platypus. Yeah, we do see way, some. Mark. Yep, we definitely see some platypus. Yeah. And echidnas are one of my. Um, oh, they just break my heart because they've obviously evolved in an environment without cars. They are tough as they are tough as a little tank <laughs> in every way, except their bloody delicate snout. And um, and we regularly have to make the decision to euthanize echidnas, which breaks our heart because they'll have. Um, you know, they'll be clipped by a car with their snout out. Um, they'll, you know, they'll, they, the rest of their body is almost impregnable, um, but the slightest little roll on the ground um, on the edge of the road will uh, cause horrendous fractures to um, their delicate uh, schnuffling snout and, um, and they are just about irreparable. You can't pin them, you can't do anything. Um, when I was a much more... Um, enthusiastic and foolish, naive young vet. I, um, uh, in my attempt not to have to euthanise these animals, I tried to do things, but they are just impossible. And um, and so that's one of those cases where um, paying particular attention to the, the echidna's snout after a car accident, and um, and if there's any significant injury, not going any further um, is a, a, a really sensible choice. And it's funny you should mention that, Mark. I use that as an exact case report today <laughs> for the teaching. Uh, an echidna was run over by a car and it had a broken beak or a broken um, nose or snout, um, and we discussed the pros and cons of potentially trying to treat it. So, yeah, exactly what you what you went through there is um, what, what, what we spoke about. Um, the only other comment I'd, I'd, I'd talk about that is you will see occasionally echidnas that are brought in that don't have an injury to their to their face or their snout and yet they're blowing bubbles um, and that is not abnormal for an echidna to be potentially um, blowing some bubbles out of its nostrils there so it does not mean that that echidna if you jump to conclusions, um, has pneumonia or a respiratory infection or it does have a broken snout, it may just mean that echidna's blowing bubbles because it's a little bit stressed. Um, so that in itself is not um, something that you should then decide to euthanise that echidna. Um, and, yeah, some of these things are specific, and that's where you need to phone a friend with wildlife if you're not, not um, used to dealing with them and, and contact somebody who has more experience with dealing with that particular species to find out the best way to deal with that animal and whether it is a an injury or a condition that is that is repairable um or and and i've got one yeah. i've got one last one for you sure. one of the common species we see in this circumstance are tawny frog mouths one of my favorite birds to find at night and i love nothing more than finding a um a, a nest a little bit earlier in the year, found a couple of beautiful nests and love watching the young grow up. Um, one of our wonderful nurses is a bit of an expert at rearing um, orphan chicks. Um, but one of the, the, um, uh, 
uh, one of the real common circumstances for us um, the, uh, is to find 20 frog mouths that have been um, struck by cars. And, um, and once again, this is a, 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 a tip to lead to rapid triage. Um, but what happens to the tawnies is they, they love... They love cockroaches and shiny beetles and, um, and large centipedes. These are all favourite prey items. And these shiny-backed insects and arthropods um, are particularly easy to spot in headlights when the car's about 100 metres away on a relatively dark road. So the tawny will be in a tree on the side of the road and swoop down when they see the glittering um, back of a uh, centipede. They'll eat the centipede, and just as they bob their head up from their meal, the car will clock them on the, 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 um, on the head um, and often kill them. But if they don't kill them, um, they'll present to the local veterinary hospital and... The problem is that of all the other injuries, the thing that's most important is to look in their eyes, that the sudden um, trauma to their head regularly detaches their retinas and uh, means that they're, um, uh, that they're not going to be able to be ever released. And so having a good thorough look in the eye with your ophthalmoscope um, helps to make the decision with those 24-hour males very quickly in many cases. Um, so uh, that's one that we, we often see two or three days down the track that's been to another facility and, uh, and that decision should have been made much earlier. Yep. Well, I think another podcast that we can have, and I'll put it on the list, Mark, is top 10 tips or, and tricks um, for dealing with wildlife. So we'll do that as another um, another topic at some stage. So I'll add it to the ever-expanding list of potential topics. Um, we're almost out of time, Mark, but I think you were desperately, you desperately wanted to do a, a film review. I, I I did desperately want to do. Do you think this is the the? the oh God, we were talking about whether we're going to watch both episodes and do the review together, or should we go now? Um. Uh, yeah, let's wait. Let's wait. Yeah. Let's keep our listeners on edge, Mark. I think. <laughs> um, so what we're doing, we're 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 revisiting an old classic film, and then um, we've now both watched the. Um, follow one or the reboot, as they like to say these days, of 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 um, of the original classic film, and then we will do a review on both of them. Maybe next week, depending on whether we remember <laughs> or not. Um, and um, yeah, something to look forward to or not to look forward to if you're not interested in um, in films. Um, and um, I think. That because the music man has um, just about started, it's time to sign off and um, don't forget to visit us on our website and we will talk to you all next week. Thanks for listening to the Vet Podcast by the Vet Gurus. Don't forget to visit us at the website, vetgurus.com, where you can subscribe, view show notes, listen to previous episodes and more. You can contact us via email at vetgurus at gmail.com to ask a question or just say hi. Thanks again and see you next time. Thanks.